0: This is Aspire, Arch Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Holly Kamisa, Associate Director of Communications for Arch Street Press, and I'll be your host today. Today, our guest is Gayatri Datar, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Earth Enable, whose mission is to improve the health and housing of low-income communities by providing affordable and sanitary floors to the 80% of Rwandans and billions of people globally who live and sleep on dirt floors. Earth Enable trains masons to install floors made of sanitary materials that are easy to clean. Gaia has worked with Dahlberg Global Development Advisors, the World Bank, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She received her B.A. in economics from Harvard College, an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and a Master of Public Administration in International Development from the Harvard Kennedy School. In 2014, she was awarded an Echoing Green Fellowship for her work with Earth and Abel. She is one of Forbes' 30 Under 30 for 2015. Gaia, it's a pleasure to have you with us today.
1: Thank you, Holly. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Did you have experiences growing up that opened your eyes to your desire to give back through your work?
1: Um, Yeah, certainly. So my my parents are both Indian, and uh, we would go back basically every summer to India um, when I was growing up, even though I grew up and was born in the States. And um, one thing as they were raising me that I think um, really has influenced me throughout my life is just really not taking advantage or not taking for granted of anything that I had and really recognizing how lucky we were um, and how many opportunities that we had. And so I think that was really instilled in me throughout my whole childhood and throughout throughout my upbringing. Um, and I think, I think that's really influenced where I am today.
0: And how did your education and time in college contribute to your concern for household sanitation globally?
1: So my, I only really got into this whole thing about floors and household sanitation, and um, in grad school specifically, um, I'll tell you about that later, I'm sure, through a course that I took at Stanford at the design school. Um, but in college itself, um, I had the opportunity to take a couple semesters off of school, um, largely because my best friend in college did the same thing earlier, and I didn't even realize that was an option. Um, but since he did it then, I thought that's such an amazing way that I could really see the world and give back and make an impact while still in college. And frankly, I was a little bit lost during school. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So um, the first thing I did was go to India after the tsunami in 2004. Um, so I spent the spring semester of 2005 um, doing tsunami relief work in a village in India. And after that experience, I was convinced that I was going to stay in international development for my whole career and just saw so much potential for... Um, things to be better and for NGOs to be more efficient and I could really see my role in that from an early age so I was really lucky in that regard.
0: So you spent some time in India. Did you spend time anywhere else abroad and how did those experiences uh, influence you?
1: Yeah so I was um so India was one then I went to Namibia the next summer. Um, I spent time in Nicaragua largely doing thesis research um, on microfinance. Um, I spent time in Albania and basically, I realized in college that I had a ton to learn about this field, and in order to really make an impact um, while I was still able to to do this kind of work and to get grant funding to go and uh, do short-term internships and um, really expose myself to a variety of industries and. Regions that I really wanted to do that, um, and so that was that was really what let me see the bigger picture from um, a young age. So it, it, I ended up graduating from college um, two years late, so I took three semesters up total, um, but I got there eventually. And I think it was um, I think that by the time I graduated, I had a really good sense of what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be.
0: Definitely, it sounds like you during the time you were in college got a great combination of both traditional education and real-world learning, um, even if you did graduate late. So how did that combination of scholarly and real-world learning influence your interest in global development?
1: So I would say that basically when I came back from India, I structured a lot of my scholarly learning towards the sector. Um, I realized that the language of development is largely based in um, development economics, Um, at least in the the type of development that I was was good at and that I was learning about. Um, So I ended up majoring in that, ended up, as I said, writing my college thesis on that, uh, and really just trying to get to know as many professors as I could that were involved with the sector and uh, going to as many talks and as many lectures and as many extracurriculars, so I'd said that the academic piece is definitely part of it and because of because of my major in um, in development economics, basically I was able to ground a lot of the real world stuff in some kind of theory and really understand the jargon around development and understand uh the way all the pieces fit together from a more theoretical perspective. And being able to combine that with practical on the ground experience, doing the you know, the grant writing and the field work, um, I think really made it all come together.
0: You have had plenty of experience working for NGOs and traveling the world. How did your time working for different organizations lead to your co-founding, Earthenable?
1: So honestly, I never really thought of myself as someone that was going to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) um, Stanford Business School is known to be a place where you go into an entrepreneurship, and it certainly was, uh, but... I never really thought I would be the person that was starting something or that would be um, at the helm. I always kind of saw myself as someone that would build things within existing platforms, existing organizations, and uh, make my impact that way. Um, Earth Enable came out of, well, I guess, I guess from my experiences, I was very convinced in simple solutions that um, have been proven to work and that can really make an impact, even if they aren't sexy, and recognizing that social enterprise itself is, I think, a really interesting and innovative way to make a big social change because, um, you can use market-based principles that, uh, still have a heart and can figure out how to make the trade-off between, uh, financial sustainability and impact in a way that can be pretty win-win. So I was really interested in those types of models and, and I was getting, gonna get more and more interested in those through my work at Dahlberg, which took more of a private sector approach, I would say, than a lot of the work that I had done earlier. So I was definitely convinced uh, by the concept of social enterprise, and at the same time convinced that simple solutions really work. And so when I took this class at Stanford called Design for Extreme Portability, and um, this concept came out of it, it was almost a no-brainer that it had to happen. Um, And that's, that's kind of how it all came together.
0: So what are the dangers of dirt floors that you're addressing with Earth Enable?
1: Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, so basically, 80% of Rwanda right now lives and sleeps on just mud or dirt, and it's incredibly unsanitary. So it's been it's been shown that um, replacing a dirt floor with a concrete floor reduces diarrhea by 49% and parasitic infections by 78%. It also has significant improvements in cognitive development, significantly reduces anemia, and um, So this is an academic study that was done in Mexico, and it it was very clear that there are massive health implications of having a dirt floor, because I spend a lot of time in them now, and just, you know, every step you take kicks up dust and dirt, and that's full of pathogens and parasites and bacteria, and all this bad stuff that just kind of stays there, because you can't clean a dirt floor. So you always see um, generally adolescent girls sweeping the dirt floors and that causes these dust clouds to come up and that's all ingested and inhaled by the kids the kids start coughing so the respiratory health issues then ingesting that causes diarrhea and malnutrition um jiggers are a big problem in in Rwanda which are these little fleas that basically um, catch on to your foot and cause these bulbs um, so there's just a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff that happens through the dirt floor. And, and most importantly, it's just, it's just an unsanitary place to live. You can't clean it, and so you can't ever really be completely free of dirt and dust. Um, and so, for example, if you have kids, of course, kids poop and pee on the floor, and then that just kind of stays there, and that causes um, also tremendous diseases to fester. So dirt floors themselves um, cause tremendous health implications, but also are just really inconvenient um, you know, if you're if you're washing your clothes and something falls and it's immediately dirty and muddy and you have to wash it again. Um, if you're cooking and some food falls and it's immediately dirty. Uh, if you sit down, all your clothes get dirty. So, just the, the the time burden it takes to do household chores is a lot higher. Um, the hassle life is a lot more. And frankly, having a dirt floor makes the whole house kind of. Um, look look a little bit less nice and clean, Mm -hmm. and so we find that when we install one of our floors, it really transforms the home to be a really beautiful place.
0: You mentioned concrete. What is the flooring that Earthenable works to bring people made of, and how is it more sanitary?
1: Yeah, so Earthenable's floors are uh, called earthen floors. So this is not a technique that we invented. This is a technique that's been around for decades and decades, really centuries, um, cob building and natural building, which is, um, so an earthen floor is basically compressed natural materials. So we have a layer of gravel, then we have a layer of um, laterite, which is basically small pebbles with some with some clay content. Then on top of that, we put what we call earthcrete, uh, which is our, our concrete um, alternative, which is basically the same thing as concrete, except instead of cement, we use um, we use this clayish water. So we take pure clay and melt it so it has that same binding property, um, but it doesn't have cement. And then we layer it with a really smooth screed, and then um, the secret sauce of earthenable is this proprietary varnish um, that Rick Zuzel, who's my co-founder and a biochemistry PhD candidate now at Stanford, uh, so he developed a, a, basically a linseed oil alternative. So linseed oil, um, which you might know from... From any hardware store in the U.S., it's a drying oil, so it polymerizes when it dries, and oil does the exact same thing. Um, basically, once it dries, it turns to a hard plastic-like resin, so that makes the floor waterproof and abrasion-resistant and durable. And um, importantly, because the floor doesn't have any cement in it, it has 90% less embedded energy, and um, because concrete is actually respons- cement and concrete are responsible for five percent of global carbon emissions. The environmental impact is massive. So by removing that, we remove a lot of the energy intensity and a lot of the unsustainability of, of a concrete floor. Um, and in addition, cement is incredibly expensive and in the most expensive part of any kind of building in Rwanda. And so that's why our floor is seventy percent cheaper than cement floor, which is really the only alternative that people have.
0: That's really fascinating, and you're addressing so many issues at once. What has it been like to sort of innovate and create your own alternatives to solve a world problem, especially with all these other factors like sustainability and cost?
1: Well, it's just amazing. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't, t- 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 I didn't do much of the inventing, to be honest. A lot of that <laughs> <was> done by... <laughs> um, well, Rick did a lot of that. Rick is an absolute genius, MacGyver, as I like to call him. Um, but, so, so he, of course, did all of that. But, I mean, a lot of what our technique is, was, it started with using the cob builders and the earthen builders, um, in the U.S., who we learned a ton from. And then after that, uh it basically became a matter of trying to make it fit the Rwandese context. So we have we've got an amazing local team of Masons. So we have thirty-seven Masons and apprentices now um, who are who are Rwandese staff that, that build our floors, uh, managed by Henry Recundo, who is our operations manager. <coughs> Excuse me. And um we actually gave them these innovation floors. So we let them experiment with materials that they knew because we knew that Masons will know a lot better about local materials than we would. And just let them try random things with Henry's approval, of course, they went too crazy. Um, And then just saw what happened. And these were all done for free for uh, really vulnerable families. And basically found that there were significant improvements that we could make to our existing floor. So one example is that we used to use um, the clay that was in the soil And then one of the masons really wanted to try this very pure clay. And I was positive it wouldn't work. I was like, this is going to crack like crazy. It's too much clay content. I know what clay content does. Um, But lo and behold, it was a phenomenal result. And it was a much more consistent product, much harder, much stronger and this came from uh, from a mason who's who's you know by by any definition would never have had necessarily the opportunity to completely change a product of a of a company that's growing like ours. So one the thing that's been most exhilarating for me is being able to build a team that's really developing the product together and figuring out ways that we can empower everybody within the organization to build the company and and even build the product uh, to be better and better.
0: So great to hear that you're working with local masons. Uh, What is the process of training and hiring them like?
1: Yeah, so basically what we do, we we initially started by having um, tryouts. (laughs) So we'd have a tryout day, basically, where people would come in and show us their traveling skills and their compaction skills and get a sense of their attitude. Um, And then those would become apprentices. So the ones that that passed that tryout phase became apprentices. Um, Then over the course of a month or so, they would learn from an existing Mason, from someone that's already been trained and already working with us. And then once they're ready to get promoted, then they get promoted to being a full Mason. Um, now our strategy's changed a bit and um, basically because we are foreman, um Jean-Pierre does does most of that with Henry. And they have their ways of scouting and finding people. They like sit there and they watch people work and they're like, okay, you know, this guy does good work. We should we should see if he wants to be an apprentice. Um, and we found that because we're probably we're the only company that I know of in Bugesera, maybe in Rwanda, I'm not sure um, that hires full-time, salaried masons. Often masons are more of a daily labor type job, and um, to get a full-time job as a mason is something that's um, incredibly difficult. But it's incredibly valued to have a stable, constant salary. We pay their pension, we give them health insurance, we give their families health insurance. Um, so obviously pay their taxes, um, so all of those benefits that come with working for a company in a full-time capacity is something that's uh, pretty, pretty new and really, really valued, and also really works well for us, frankly, because it means that we get really loyal employees that work really hard, um, and that feel really part of what we're building, um, and so we really invest in each other, I think, and that's, that's been really, that's been really neat.
0: That's great, and Sort of like with the process of developing the oil, with hiring the masons, you're not just dealing with sanitation and floors, but helping people in so many different ways by doing that.
1: Um, I appreciate that.
0: This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Bay Under 30 interview with Associate Director of Communications Holly Kanisa and Gayatri Datar, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Earth Enable. So, you're based out of Rwanda primarily, but what other areas of the world are in particular need of the services that Earth Enable offers and where else are you working or looking to expand?
1: Oh, everywhere. I mean, there are billions of people that live and sleep on dirt floors now, and it's so devastating because. Because we have this such low-cost, simple solution that could, that could address, that could address this huge, huge issue. Um, so right now, the reason we picked Rwanda to start was, um, one, because when we were initially developing the idea via that class at Stanford, we were partnered with the Mass Design Group, which is a, um, organization based in Rwanda. But then also as we were looking to figure out where to really launch and where we should move after, after I graduated, Um, Rwanda is very densely populated, which means distribution is easy. Um, it's, it's cement prices are incredibly high here, which means that there's a lot of unplored people. Um, doing business here is relatively easy compared to other places. Um, so all of those things made this a good place to start with the notion that we would definitely be scaling the model as soon as we could. So the, the plan has always been to, Work in a place where it's relatively easier because people are kind of clustered, because the market's really big, um, and because the country's relatively smaller, so it's a little bit more manageable than a huge place like India where I've done other work. But once we prove the model, then being able to replicate that in, for example, Uganda where people might be slightly more spread apart, or Kenya where um, the same the same um, issue is there, where people live on their farms rather than live next to each other. But the idea is that we scale globally as soon as we can and find innovative ways to do that, whether that's through social franchises and partnerships, or licensing out our technology or something else. But um, the goal is to really figure out how to make this product perfectly good and scalable and then and then scale.
0: And what kind of partnerships do you have and how has that been?
1: Um, yeah, so we have um, so our partnerships with um, a bunch of local organizations that have been incredibly helpful. So the Mass Design Group is one, as I mentioned. Um, they were our original partner during the class I took at Stanford. Um, Stanford University in general has been an amazing partner, um, both through the social innovation fellowship, which they, which they, um, granted us after, right, right after we graduated, right when I started, um, when I moved here and really started the business. And in addition, I mean, that's that's how I met Rick, my co-founder. They've been tremendously supportive in just in kind ways, especially through SIF offering pro bono services. Like, so for example, we needed to um, customize Salesforce. So we're talking to the Salesforce person at Stanford who's helping. So they've been amazing. Um, Gardens for Health International is our partner where we um, share resources there to manufacture our oil. So that's been great. Uh, Who else are our partners? The government in general has been incredibly supportive of us. Um, We've met several uh, ministers and also local authorities who um, have been really supportive and excited about our new technology, largely because of the social impact that it has. So I would say that's another partnership that we're really grateful to have.
0: What improvements have you seen because of Earth Enable's work?
1: Yeah, so we are currently in the midst of doing a study to demonstrate our actual health impact. So we have a control group and we have our our um, customers, and we're looking at various health indicators over the course of um, twelve to fifteen months. So we are that's in process now. So I'm excited to see to, to be able to tell you the actual data. Um, But based on qualitative evidence that we've heard from our customers, people are really excited that they can actually clean their floor, that they can breathe easier in their home, that um, it looks so nice, it feels so nice, it's so strong. Um, So so we've heard a lot of that type of anecdotal evidence that, um, you know, now we can clean up spills and now things don't get dirty when they fall. And those kinds of, of small anecdotes really give us a lot of hope that, Um, This is a product that's going to scale really quickly because the impacts are so tangible and so present and so immediate in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of the health impacts itself, I'm excited to be able to to (laughs) give you exact answers of what we've seen in terms of reductions of diarrhea. But Mm -hmm. I'm very confident that they're there because having having a barrier between all that bad stuff in a dirt floor and people living on it is such an enormous immediate health vision.
0: Definitely. It will probably be so rewarding to sort of get the results of those reports. Yeah. What challenges have you faced working to bring hand sanitation, and how have you been able to overcome them?
1: Oh, uh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's, there's so many things that we never anticipated. Um, and so I think a big part of being an entrepreneur is just, you know, rolling with the punches, problem solving, pivoting as you need to, and doing what you can to work it out. Um, so some examples are some of our customers were some of our customers treat their floor really well. They wash it every day. They clean it. Um, other customers we've seen hadn't have the hygiene education to know that they should be cleaning their floor. And so we'd go into homes that we had done a floor, but it was still really dirty there. And so we realized we need to really incorporate an element of trading about um, how to how to maintain and care for this floor via our sales agents. Um, so that's one example. Um, Another example is that the rainy season. <laughs> the rainy season really, really put us in a bad spot because our sand would always get wet. Floors just would take a really long time. Um, they would take a really long time to dry, for example, and so that would mean that would mean people were out of their home for longer. And so we just had to innovate and figure out ways to address it. So um, now to speed up the process, for example, we use blowtorches, and blowtorches actually are used to can can make the floor dry almost instantaneously <laughs> because wow. you're blowtorching it. <laughs> Um, so, um, things like that, we've just learned along the way, um, other things are just distribution costs were so much higher than we expected. So transport, for example, of sand, we would spend, it would be 6,000 francs to, um, get the sand in a truck, but then 25,000, 25,000 just to get it delivered, um, because, Fuso fighters, which are the big trucks that deliver material, are just so expensive that um, people <clears throat> charge a lot for for delivery services. So we just bought a Fuso fighter, and that will that will pay for itself um, based on based on my model in about a year and a half, um, even if we are able to sell it for zero. So that kind of thing, we've learned where our costs are really coming from, how expensive it really is to operate this kind of a business, which is really logistically intensive, and how we need to vertically integrate to make sure that we can keep our costs low and serve as many people as we can. Mm
0: -hmm. Sounds like you're dealing with a mix of both sort of entrepreneurial and business challenges and then Mm -hmm. local and more experiential ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. How has your experience been living in Rwanda and giving back there? Oh,
1: I love Rwanda. Rwanda's amazing. It's such a first of all it's just a beautiful country. Um and it's just it's it's been it's such a joy to to be here. Um I'm starting to learn Kenya Rwanda and taking lessons every that's the local language here. I was taking lessons almost every day when I first got here and now I try to keep them up at least a couple times a week. Um and people are thrilled that I'm even trying. um behuru, as we say. Like slowly, slowly <laughs> you'll you'll learn. Um but I've loved it. It's it's such an amazing set of things. It's very safe. It's very beautiful. People are really lovely. People are really friendly and excited. Um, I just find there's so much joy in doing my job. Just, I love going to the village, and I love interacting with people and just seeing, seeing how this country is growing so fast and seeing the progress happening in front of my eyes. Um, so it's been a real honor to be here.
0: How has empathy played a role in forming Earth Enable and the organization's approach?
1: Empathy was, I think, the cornerstone of it. So so the design school at Stanford's um, approach to developing and really understanding user needs um, is really around empathy. And the idea is to really try to understand your users from their perspective. That's what they call them, users, Um, which I loved. It was the first time I've worked in development now for more than 10 years, and I'm used to saying the word beneficiary. And so, to go to a place where we talk about users and customers and clients instead was really was really nice. Um, but so, really trying to understand not just what is physically needed to improve health, but what do people want? Like, what is their real emotional need behind um, behind whatever physical need is also there? And that's really what has driven, I think, the way a lot of products have been designed in in the U.S. and in the developed world. And so bringing that kind of approach and, and being able to spend time. So we, we were in Rwanda for two weeks um, as part of the class over spring break and spent all two weeks in people's homes just trying to understand everything about their life, following every step, um, taking care of their kids, cooking food with them, sweeping the floors with them. And frankly, I've I've worked in the sector for a long time. I've always known that dirt floors are uh, are a thing that everybody has. I've always known that it's one of the key indicators of poverty, but I don't think I really fully empathized with what it was like to have a dirt floor until even just for a day I was I was living on one and, and staying on one and realized that this is this is actually incredibly burdensome and incredibly unhealthy and really unsanitary. And just really hearing how people were saying that they wanted to get a cement floor once you would ask them questions like, if you had more money, what would you invest in? And people would talk about their roofs first. Um, roofs, I think, were more important than the floor. But they would talk about the floor next as a home improvement that would be really important. And one thing that that I think became clear through the class was that while having a – well, poverty was obviously the, the reason that people had a dirt floor and had homes that weren't particularly good quality – um, having that kind of home makes you just feel poor, makes you feel, you know, less upwardly mobile and less able to kind of conquer the day's challenges. And so I just remember one woman was like, there's just nothing I can do about it, though. So it's just the way it is. And it was kind of accepted as 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 fate. Um, and so that was that's just continued to inspire me throughout this whole journey is that, yes, we're improving health, but we're also improving emotional health, I think, in a really significant way. Um, and the study I mentioned earlier in Mexico actually shows a significant impre- increase in happiness and, and, and a reduction in perceived stress as well by having a clean floor. And so those kind of benefits I don't think I ever would have recognized without really spending the time empathizing and really trying, really trying as hard as I could to understand what it was like and to recognize that I won't ever know for sure, but um, by, by really trying to empathize in a really meaningful way, um, I think we were able to get where we are.
0: What advice would you offer to young people seeking to start their own organizations?
1: Honestly, I think to really, um, empathize. Mm-hmm. I think about, I think, I think that's <laughs> such a big part of it. I mean, it just, it's so funny, when we were given, Mass Design gave us the challenge of, uh, find a way to improve health in the home or the community, which was our design challenge. And I was like, oh, okay, cook stoves. <laughs> because I've read so much about cook stoves as uh, a huge pot pit issue of air pollution. And it is an enormous issue. But the fact that I just jumped directly to that instead of spending the time to think about, you know, what other things were there, what else causes causes challenges, uh, what else could we do? Um, I think I think without doing that, we wouldn't have gotten to where we are. I think I probably would have started if I would have just been that, and I had to spend the time in Rwanda doing all the empathy work, as we called it, In the design school class, I don't think we would have gotten here. So I think do a lot of that. Talk to your customers. Understand who they are. Understand what they need. Understand why they need it. And then develop a product around that. And just consistently be open-minded. Challenge your assumptions and just... Never assume you know anything because most likely you don't. <laughs> most likely you're very, very wrong. Um, and so just be very open to that and be open to completely pivoting and changing your business model if it's not working, changing your product if it's not working. Um, the motto they use at the School is to fail early and fail often, and that's something that I have really clung to um, because I, in my very type A personality in life, um, have not liked failure and not been very comfortable with it. <laughs> Um, and so just really learning that that's kind of what I was saying earlier about this whole entrepreneurship thing I wasn't really sure if it was for me because I was very risk averse and not, and not into failure but I really learned to embrace it and I think that it's, it's in everybody I don't, think it's, I don't think necessarily that entrepreneurs have a specific gene I think that um, you can train yourself to be one <laughs> just by getting more comfortable with the fact that you don't know all the answers and that um, just be comfortable doing that just fail try to it if it doesn't work <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly
0: what does the future hold for Earth Enable and what would you ideally like to see happen
1: so the future which I'm very excited about now is I think we're likely going to so one of the things that we're testing right now um, along the same lines with the fail early and fail often um, is a, a new product which would be much more do it yourself so right now um our Our costs are largely labor. So for everybody that buys a floor, 60% of that cost will be um, labor and the masons that go and install it because we want to pay our masons well. Um, We also want to keep our prices low, and we also want to be a financially sustainable business. So (laughs) keeping that impossible trinity together has been has been fun. Um, But one of our ideas is to keep prices even lower, is to offer a completely new product line. And... I think, I'm, I think that could be a huge home run because it would be a third of the price of our current product, which would be 10% of the cost of cement, or 90% cheaper, which is much, much, much cheaper, and I think that makes it much, much more affordable. So right now, our target market is really the, up to 80%. We're pretty much towards the 60 to 80% of that. So there's still people that have dirt floors, they can't afford concrete, they're still relatively poor, uh, but, at the end of the day to really target the 20 to 60%. We were very aware and recognizing that we're not getting there yet and we need to figure out how to do it because that's why we're here and that's who we care about. So launching this new product is one way we're thinking about doing it. Um, another way is to offer financing. So finance the floor of the coach for a couple of years because people can't afford to pay a little bit every month. They just can't afford to pay $60 or $70 all at once in in one month. So given that, um, I think what's the, what the future for us is, is scale, but not just geographic scale, but really figuring out how to stay very true to our mission and scale down. So scale towards the parts of the poor, towards the base of the pyramid, and figure out how to make the product work for everybody.
0: Great. Is there anything else you would like to say about yourself or about Earth Enable?
1: No, I don't think so. But thank you so much for um, giving me the opportunity to talk about Earthenable. I love doing it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Definitely. Gaia, thank you so much for being our guest. The best way to reach Gaia and to support Earthenable's work is through earthingable.org. Click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.